everyone, and welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol, and I just want to welcome you back to our series on Revelation. We are so glad you guys are tuning in out there. And today we begin the second to the last letter. I'm sure some of you out there are really happy about that because you want to move on to the rest of the book. But these letters are so important, you guys. We There is so much for the body of Christ to learn and to heed from these letters that we could that we should be applying in our life today. Well, today is the letter to the church of Philadelphia. And then after this letter, we have the letter to the church of Laodicea. And then we move on to the rest of the book. But this is a special church. It's known as a faithful church. So we're going to read this letter first, and then we're going to get into talking about the city, and then we'll go into other aspects of the letter. So if you want to read with me, it's from Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What a remarkable letter. Wouldn't you just love to get a letter of commendation like that? Because that's exactly what it was. There's no accusation in this letter, just encouragement and blessing. He's giving so much approval to this church, a church with little strength left, but holding on regardless. And maybe that's one of you out there. And if it is, stay at it wherever you are in the world. Stay at it. Stay faithful. The Lord sees you. You know, there's a prayer, if I could digress for one second, there's a prayer. I love to pray for the body of Christ all over the world when I do my prayer time. And maybe you want to pray it as well if you don't already. And it's from Colossians chapter 1, 9 through 12. And I'm just going to read this over you right now as a prayer. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. And I bless you guys with that today, with that word from scripture. And, you know, we just have to keep each other encouraged. And I just think that's an encouraging prayer. And reading that encouraging letter just put me in an encouraging mood. So there you go. Well, let's start talking about this city and um, and see what's going on here and how Jesus brings aspects of this city into the letter. 
So Philadelphia is located about 26 miles south of Sardis. And it was located on the border of three counties. You had Lydia, you had Misha, and you had Phrygia. Therefore, because it was on these three counties, it was called the Gateway to the East because it stood at an important junction on a road that was called the Imperial Post Road. And that road ran from Rome to Troas to Pergamon to Sardis and on through Tarsus and then out eastward. Therefore, they had an open door through which to share the gospel. They, could, they were at this critical junction in order to go and take it further. And this road was traveled by many people, so therefore a lot of travelers would pass through Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia, being the furthest east Greek colony at the time, was also known as a missionary city, but not necessarily the missionaries for Christians or what you might think, but missionaries to take their Hellenistic culture eastward. So it was a very important city for that task. Now, environmentally, the city was known for a couple of other reasons. First, it was called or considered burnt land. That's how it was referenced because of the type of soil that was there. You know, it started out as volcanic rock, and eventually that rock would, of course, crumble over time, making up soil. And that type of soil was very fertile to grow something in particular, vines. Therefore, Philadelphia became a a grower of grapes and became known for its wine produce, which explains why they worshiped the god of Dionysus, who was the god of wine, and he was also the god of harvest and grapes. Other gods were worshipped there as well, and temples were built to those gods, a little Roman replica, right? But Dionysus was their focus. Now, you have to understand that people in Rome, or people in the Roman Empire, uh, and of course the Greek Empire too, they believed that the gods and goddesses that they worshipped, all these gods and goddesses we've been talking about, that they would produce the very thing they were known for. So therefore, the people of Philadelphia, if they wanted to keep that region fertile for grapes, they knew they needed to worship Dionysus and definitely pay homage to him by giving him, of course, first fruits of their crops and other offerings. So in order to just keep that going. Now, something else about this region, which is really important to understand, is that besides having good soil to grow grapes for wine... This region was also known to be prone to earthquakes. Southwest Turkey, even today, is very susceptible to quakes. And there was one earthquake in particular that took place in AD 17 that literally just about fully destroyed Sardis and Philadelphia. Philadelphia actually experienced most of the aftershocks of that earthquake, causing many of their structures that were built during that time to crumble under the shaking except the temples, they could withstand quite a bit of shaking because the way that they built their temples, their foundations were laid on beds of charcoal and then covered with wool fleeces, which caused the structure to float kind of like a raft. And then each block was joined together by these metal cramps so that the platform was a unity. So the temple would be the most secure structure, which is interesting because the promise to be a pillar in the temple of God was in Jesus's letter. And it was one that, of course, would promise security and safety. But in other structures, naturally, 
the people, when this would take place, they would run in and run out, right? If an earthquake was coming today in my home, I would be running out my door into the street, away from trees, away from other structures. And that's what they would do because those structures would crumble so easily. So the people would be used to running outside. And then when it's done, they would run back inside, but then the aftershocks would come. And so they grew accustomed to this when any earthquake came which may also be why Jesus identifies with the people of Philadelphia in this letter when he's discussing the overcomers becoming a pillar in the temple of his God, saying they shall go out no more. Jesus is basically saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you a permanent structure. Nothing is going to shake this pillar, this structure. You will run out no more. The people of this church They are going to be firmly fixed in the temple of God. What a powerful statement. Now, if that many earthquakes rattled this region, imagine all the rebuilding they had to do. They needed tools. They needed things to rebuild all these structures, right? And I imagine it took quite some time to accomplish the task. If you've ever looked at earthquakes or the aftermath of earthquakes in that region, with those old structures that are built over there. I mean, we've seen it on TV, right? The crumbling, the rocks. It would take a long time to uncover so much. Well, I imagine that's what they went through. Consider that these people would be constantly rebuilding their homes and other structures around them. And yet Jesus relates to that as well because he makes references to building objects such as doors and keys and locks and pillars things that these people are probably very familiar with. You can see now why in the very beginning of this whole series, how he identifies himself as he who walks among the seven lampstands. He walks among the churches, friends. He's very, very familiar with their environment, their conditions, just as he is with ours. I just find that so incredible because he brings it all into his letter. But Jesus is also going to do something else with this church. He's going to give them new names. He says he's going to write on him, on them the name of his God. And then he's going to give him the name of the city of his God, the new Jerusalem that's going to come out of heaven. I mean, imagine Rome has populated all of their cities with their false gods and their temples, and all the false names that they have to bow down to constantly. And Jesus is telling them, you aren't going to have to deal with that anymore. You'll have my God, his Father, and you'll have a holy city to dwell in, the New Jerusalem. And that detail about the New Jerusalem comes at the end of Revelation. We'll get to that at some point. But then he's going to write on him, my new name. That's three names that he references here in this letter that these faithful ones are going to receive. And here's what I find interesting about that, that reference. You see, Philadelphia was a city that regularly changed names. It was called Philadelphia because of um, King Eumenes. He was the king of Pergamon at one point. And he named Philadelphia after Adelis II, his brother, because Adelis was known also as Philadelphus, and it means brotherly love, and he dearly loved his brother. But in the first century, after the AD 17 earthquake, 
the people renamed Philadelphia to Neo-Caesarea after Emperor Tiberius in gratitude to his generosity because he helped them rebuild the city. But then in the late century, first century, around this time, they renamed it Flavia after Vespasian, who gave financial assistance after a similar catastrophe. So this city had changed names multiple times by the end of the first century. And then in the middle of the, or the end of the third century, it was called Little Athens because they had a mound where they built up many temples on it to their gods. So this city was constantly changing names. And I just love how Jesus brought that subtly into this letter. Do you see the pattern he uses for each church? Walking amongst these churches. And his angels are there too. Remember the seven stars, those seven angels? They're all involved in the spiritual atmospheres there as they are us. And this church was a small struggling church, but yet they remained faithful. You know, Sardis is 26 miles away and dying, right? We learned about that in the last episode because they assimilated too much into culture. Sardis became a congregation who had taken on the temperature of the society around it. And he he was saying, strengthen what remains or else that's going to die too. But this church, just a short 26 miles away, was different. They were faithful, and Jesus wanted to encourage them. So he opens up this letter by identifying himself in a very unique way. These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. This letter actually gives the longest description of Jesus of any of the seven letters. First of all, it says that he is holy. In the Hebrew, holy is kadosh. Kadosh literally means to be set apart for a special purpose. Just like Israel was kadosh because they were separated out from other nations, or the furnishings of the tabernacle were kadosh, as they were not to be used for anything except the work in the tabernacle, right? Well, Jesus is holy. He's kadosh. He was set apart by the Father to be the Lamb of God, to be the resurrection and the life, to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to fulfill the office of prophet, priest, our high priest, by the way, and now king. So he's holy. He's set apart. He's not like any of those gods that the Roman Empire is worshiping. He's far above it. El Elyon, God Most High. And he is true. There is no other God or deity or object or anything in creation that can match or copy him. They can bow down all day to all of these mute idols, but it produces nothing. He is authentic and the true one. Jesus is the only one worthy of worship and worthy to be adored. And he has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. What does this mean? Well, we can go to a reference in the book of Isaiah to get an idea of what Jesus is referring to here in this letter. In Isaiah 22, it's a story that's worth bringing into this episode, as it's a picture of what Jesus is describing in this letter. It's about a servant named Shebna, also referred to in this passage of Isaiah as the steward, He was a steward over the royal household. And the word steward can also indicate someone who is the treasurer or the prefect of the house, like a chief officer. 
All indications point that this man was in the highest authority under King Hezekiah. He was basically the king's right-hand man, similar to what Joseph in Egypt was under Pharaoh. But unlike Joseph, who was righteous and humble, Shebna had an inflated sense of prominence. So much so that he carved for himself a magnificent tomb from solid rock, a custom that was usually reserved for royalty or important people of great political power, so that when he died, he would have this magnificent tomb. Well, when Isaiah learned of the deed, he approached the corrupt treasure and he rebuked him. And this is the only example in the book of Isaiah of an individual person being rebuked by name. Go proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house and say, What have you here? And whom have you here? That you have hewn a sepulcher as he who hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock. The prophet informed Shebna that God would cast him into a far country and there he would die. Accordingly, the dignitary would have no more use for his elaborate mausoleum. So a changing of the guard took place and Shebna was replaced by a man named Eliakim, who was given the, quote, key of the house of David, end quote. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder So he shall open and no one shall shut and he shall shut and no one shall open. Here's why this position in this royal household is so important. To be the steward, to be that key holder in the house of David was significant because you had access to all the chambers. Within that house, you just, you didn't just have access to just every place you could go, but you had access to all the treasuries where the wealth and the treasures were kept. As a steward, you had this. And so he laid the key of the house of David upon the new shoulder of the new steward, Eliakim. And he was the only one now who was permitted to open, and he would also keep things shut if he needed to. And this language is borrowed by Jesus himself in this letter and applied to himself which is a clear affirmation of the kingly authority possessed by the Lord, my friends. Jesus is the door. He is also the key to everything. All the treasures of heaven are at his disposal. All the glories of his kingdom are available to his faithful church. And he is going to open the door to all of this for his faithful ones. And no one will be able to shut it to them, no matter how hard they try, because he has the key. He is the key holder. Even the Jews that are supposed to be these people's brothers, but who are of the synagogue of Satan, are going to come worship at their feet. They will be humbled at how they treated their brethren because they're going to recognize them as the people of Messiah. They are going to recognize their Messiah and that Messiah loves them. Even their enemies of this faithful church will want what they want What they have, I mean, because they see the love of Christ towards them. I just love, I just love these letters so much. Jesus reveals so much to us, my friends. And then in this letter, he lists three things that his church is doing good. Number one, they kept my word. They were obedient. They followed the Holy Scriptures. They lived a life set apart from the culture. Remember, Paul says, be holy for I am holy. Be set apart from this place. 
We should not be looking like the world today, my friends. Can we say the same? Are we obeying the word? Are we being obedient to it? Did you know, I'm just going to quote a statistic for a minute that came out of Barna Research here in America. Today, the church in America, only 6% of adult Americans that claim they're Christian hold a biblical worldview. The remaining 94% that claim they're Christians are embracing a mixture that they call syncretism. People are still considering themselves followers of Christ, even though they're not following his word or even believe the Bible anymore. Well, my friends, a wake-up call to follow Christ is to follow his word. Number two, what did he say? They have not denied my name. You know, in a place that worships Caesar and all these gods, they never denied him and the threats had to have just coming, been coming at him from all over. And the question is, will the church today, will the modern day church all over the world do the same if similar situations present themselves to us? And then his last thing that he said that they do good is they kept my command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This church, these people, they endured patiently, even though they had little strength. And some of you out there might be feeling like that right now. You are patiently enduring. You are not sure how much more you can hold on. Well, my friend, hold fast. Keep persevering. Your reward is waiting for you. Don't give up. You know, in this age, this church age, we've adopted, this, is, this bears mentioning, we've adopted uh, something called existential thinking which means we think very present, right? You hear that word a lot. Stay in the present. Enjoy the present, 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 present. To think that way, did you know, is actually adopted from New Age practices. But the church has also adopted it, which means we're very focused on how the gospel is going to solve our own personal problems or even our political problems, right? There's nothing wrong with that. However, what happens when we go about being a witness to the world, we present a gospel about how to solve these personal or political problems rather than a gospel that we see Jesus presenting in each and every one of these letters, which is how to live as an overcomer. We've become existential thinkers. And the danger of only thinking that way is this. When we lose our patience, that's how the love of many is going to grow cold. How many of you out there are frustrated with people right now and losing patience with people? When we're existential thinkers, we can be easily deceived by people that appear to have the answers we're looking for to solve all the problems going on in society, right? When we're existential thinkers, when we think this way, we're more susceptible to fear because things we're trying to think in the present to keep ourselves calm to get through the day. But we're not, we're not thinking of anything beyond that. And so we can get caught up in fear. Or we can become very frustrated when things don't go our way. When we're existential thinkers, we become more prone to give up and get tired of church, to get tired of, quote, religious people and say, I'm done or I'm done with my city. I'm moving. I'm not going to deal with this place anymore, right? That comes from existential thinking, present thinking, well, my friends, the church is not to be existential. We are called to be eschatological. So let me say that again. Eschatological people. Do you know what that means? That means we are 
future people. We are to be future thinkers. Do you ever notice we preach for the here and now and not, and rarely, if ever, speak or preach of our future with Christ? We should always be pointing people to the future of what awaits us. Eternity, life with Christ, rewards for our faithfulness, enjoying a new earth, this new Jerusalem he's talking about in this letter, and more. That's why Jesus in his letters is always saying, I'm coming soon. And he says it again this time. Because he wants us to always have the future in mind. Because when we have the future in mind, that he's coming soon, that there is this new place awaiting for us. We keep our minds fixed on above, not here. And the thought of Christ returning in an imminent manner motivates the church to live right before him. It was a common doctrine that was taught throughout the centuries, but it's been lost in modern times. We don't talk about Christ's return because we live existentially. We talk about what to do to solve this or that problem that we need done for this week or how to overcome this particular political crisis facing this nation, right? But Christ is Christ is coming soon. But yet there's no sense of urgency of that right now. There's very little fear of the Lord, very little discussion on repentance, very little discussion about our future. And our doctrine, my friends, is our future. It's the return of the Lord. Our job is to go out and gather as many fish as possible and let him sort it out later. And so he's saying in this letter that those who perseveres, those who, who have this correct thinking, it's not about their present situation in Philadelphia. It's not about the present situation of any of these churches, actually, whether they're being persecuted, whether they're at the seat of Satan, wherever they're at. It's all about the future. How many souls, I'm not, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna remove this church from where you're at because you've got a job to do. You've got to go out and win souls for the kingdom. So those who persevere, he promises he's going to keep them from an hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. What does that mean? Well, and sorry, I went on a rant there for a minute, but, but it's all, this is what the, all these letters are about. It's all about a future thinking church, keeping our minds fixed on that. But what does this mean? This hour of trial he's talking about, well, that's still being discussed between people because at the end of the day, no matter who you read or who you talk to, people truly do not know exactly what that means. But let me give you a couple of thing, rules of thought or things people are putting out there and then I'll let you take that and you decide what you want. So for some people, this is a common verse that gets quoted to justify a pre-tribulation rapture when the, tr- when the uh, trouble of the Antichrist comes upon the earth, right? We'll cover that topic in a future episode. We will dedicate a topic to the rapture of the church. Um, so I'm not saying it here, but uh, and I'm not saying that this actually describes that, but this is something that people, a verse that people pull out to support that doctrine. And it can definitely be looked upon that way. A second thought that people have, and this is for the sake of simplicity, and I just want to put this out there. If this were you, and you were part of this house church, and you were either reading this letter or this letter was being read to you, then you would take into account the state of the world in your current surroundings. So reread this letter in first century AD Christianity. Your scope of the world would be the Roman Empire, right? The Rome would seem like the world. 
So what would come to mind when you heard that word, what would come to mind when you heard that word trial that Jesus is talking about? A trial for the whole world. What would come into the mind of a first century Christian? I don't know. But one thing is for certain is Jesus is saying that this church, he's going to give them immunity over whatever that is. They were small. They couldn't take much persecution. And so Jesus is telling them there's a wave of trouble coming, but it's going to go right through you. I'm going to keep you from it. Like I said, another possibility, there's a theology built from this verse about the rapture. But I want you to notice something. This is a promise given to this faithful church. This promise was not given to Smyrna, that second church we covered, that he didn't, he had no criticism for that church. They were being heavily persecuted. He commended them, but he didn't promise them that he was going to deliver them from some trial that was coming. He was pleased with them as well. But yet with Philadelphia, Jesus is saying he's going to give them special protection from something. We don't know what that is or what it was. But it's going to be an hour of trial to test people. But Jesus gave them an encouragement that it would not touch them because they're faithful. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. These people would have been familiar with that terminology because these people were familiar with the games that would take place in their stadiums, right? In all these cities, the winners would get these laurel wreath crowns crowned upon their head. And we too get that at the judgment seat of Christ. We'll go into that later. But there are different crowns in the Bible that the Bible talks about based on how we've run our race will determine the type of crown we get. We are also going to that judgment seat of Christ to be judged for our own works, just like the runners of these races would go to the Bema seat after the race and get their crown for their head. And so scriptures, he says here in this letter, be careful that no one takes your crown. And this is actually mentioned in other places of scripture. Friends, there is a crown of rejoicing. There is a crown of praise. There is a crown of life. There is a crown of incorruptibility and there is a crown of glory. And we have to be careful that no one is trying to take our crown. You get your crown of righteousness and rejoicing. Don't let someone steal your joy. Don't let someone steal your love for Jesus. That crown of praise is your love for him. Don't let someone steal that. That crown of life, you've endured temptation. You've endured the testing. You've endured the trials. Don't let someone take that from you. Your crown of incorruptibility, how you've lived a life of discipline and self-control. Don't let someone take that from you. Your crown of glory. How did you feed and help the flock and other believers, whether you're a pastor or a layman or you serve a church or whatever you do, don't let someone take your crown. Misery loves company. Be careful, my friends. Run your race to win. And he says, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. We went through all that. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. We've covered most of that, but know, friends, that at the end of Revelation, the new city, Jerusalem, is revealed, and it is a glory to behold. So much awaits us, my friends, so many precious promises and scriptures, if we say faithful. And remember, it is he who holds the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. He has 
the treasures of heaven ready to give to us, ready at our disposal if we stay faithful. So hold fast what you have, and you too have blessings that await. God bless you. Thank you.